namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami This is uh, the 16th chapter and uh, again this is part of the uh, previously unpublished teachings um, from uh, Lumpur Samedha's time at Wapananachat <coughs> in uh, 1982 and this is called Taming the Wild Horse. When we go forth as bhikkhus and nuns we have this contemplation in the ordination procedure Kesa Loma Naka Danta Tacho Hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth and skin. This is because now that we're living the celibate life, the Brahmacharya, we're no longer able to grasp and possess the objects of lust. So the approach is to observe the objects of lust with more discrimination. But we're not here to judge the quality of any condition, but just to recognize it. To be fully conscious of lust, to watch it, rather than just repressing it. To, kn- to know it as it is, without adding anything to... To know it as it is, without adding any habitual response, such as, a monk shouldn't be lustful, then we can recognize it. It's just our own creation, a conditioned response. Lust is a natural human condition. Our bodies are made for procreation. The body, male or female, is a condition in nature. Bodies have all the organs necessary for procreating the human race. Sexual desire is then a natural human condition, not a personal problem. So we recognize it rather than reject it, and allow it its true place in nature. There's nothing to be frightened of. It's not a personal trait. If we are lay people, we may incline to indulge our sexuality. If we're celibate, we may attach to celibacy, get frightened of the natural functions of the body and tend to repress them. After all, indulging in sexual fantasy or expression can get you into a terrible state. But sexual fantasy is always done through heedlessness, not through understanding that lust is just a condition, not a personal problem. We use celibacy as a way of seeing the natural functions of our bodies as natural conditions that are not self, not personal. We learn to coexist with nature, so we are not obsessed by the conditions in our bodies in the present. When you are attracted to somebody, you don't see the flaws in them. You don't even want to know about it. If you start looking at the flaws, the lust begins diminishing. So the technique of asuba, reflecting on the impure qualities, is a skillful method for the lustful mind. It's a discriminating practice. You start looking at the separate parts of the body, hair of the head and body, nails, teeth and skin. These are the outer surface of a person, the things that we tend to be attracted to. If we see beautiful hair, beautiful eyebrows and eyelashes, moustache, beard, hair on the other parts of the body, beautiful nails, lovely white teeth and beautiful skin, what we see is that there's a beautiful person. But when we start distinguishing the hair, nails, teeth and skin, Even if you find the most wonderful blonde hair in your arms bowl, it doesn't arouse lust. Somebody's tooth, a fingernail or skin, even if it's really beautiful skin, it doesn't make you lustful. But if it's all together on a human being, beautiful hair, teeth and skin, then you feel, I want it, I've got to have it, I've got to possess it. So you begin with contemplating the hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. That's the surface. Then when you go under the surface, it becomes even less attractive. When you see a beautiful person, you reflect that they have bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, tears, spittle, snot and urine. When you become skilled in this practice, then when you see a beautiful person, you don't experience any lust. These are the skillful means which the Buddha used to observe nature and to develop insight, 
to learn from it. Asuba doesn't mean I don't like it and kidding yourself that beauty is disgusting and loathsome. The practice is not to dwell in aversion on your own body or on anybody else's, but rather to experience dispassion, rather than strong emotions of attachment or disgust. Dispassion comes with clear awareness, non-delusion around this existing condition. It's calm and impartial. So monks aren't trying to convince themselves that women are disgusting and loathsome. Women aren't trying to convince themselves that there is anything wrong with men. That's ridiculous. But you look beyond the appearance of beauty to see a little more closely. It takes a little more effort, but the effect is to, is to reduce lust in your mind. The movie industry depends on what we can create around beauty and ugliness. Some movie stars seem to exude flower-like fragrances. You'd think that nothing ever came out of their bodies. And in all those dozens of Hopalong Cassidy movies, remember Lumpur was born in 1934, so Hopalong Cassidy was a cowboy movie um, series of movies, and in all those dozens of Hopalong Cassidy movies, you never notice Hopalong Cassidy stop to take a pee. <coughs> the same applies to boxes of tissues with a pink or blue flower on them. You never see a picture of one of them that has been used. They would have to wipe the snot off. And if the tissue in the box smelled of something foul, we wouldn't want to put it up our noses, would we? We can be embarrassed by the conditions of the human form, its stomachache, its pain, its secretions, because we think it's mine. In fact, it's just a condition in nature. It's not a self. So we don't have to make the body appear as, as if it's always like a flower. That's impossible. Instead, we reflect on the body without attachment or aversion, but with dispassion so that we can use our body, or someone else's, to develop asuba practice. On the other hand, if you have a lot of aversion to your own body, then you have to develop the practice of patient kindness, metta. You find people who are naturally averse personalities. They tend to like the asuba practice. The highly discriminating mind sees ugliness in everything, so I can indulge in it. This disgusting body, loathsome, repulsive, stinking... This is merely a gleeful indulgence in it. When people say that you should practice loving-kindness, your reaction then is, that's a ridiculous, sentimental, soppy practice. That discriminating kind of mind doesn't need to develop the sense of repulsiveness or impurity. It's already conditioned that way. So if you can't develop kindly feelings, then you should just try to not dwell in aversion. You're not blinding yourself to the faults and flaws in everything, but you're just peacefully coexisting with them. You're aware of the unpleasantness, the pain, the loathsome, loathsomeness of some things, but you're not indulging in it. You stop from indulging by kindness, patience, simplicity, peacefully coexisting and not demanding that things be otherwise. So metta doesn't mean that you don't notice what's wrong with yourself and everyone else. It means that you don't develop problems around these conditions. When you have anger and aversion, you can reflect on the, on the religious life as a restricted one. When you are a monk or a nun, you are tied up, penned in. It's just like being a wild horse. All it can do is try to, all it can do is try to resist, try to get away. And then when it stops resisting, it can easily be trained. The horse then becomes very useful. It's the same with us. When we're first trying to do mindfulness of breathing, our mind is just like a wild horse. It doesn't want to be tied up. It wants to gallop all over the place. That's its habit. That's its nature. But when you have practiced mindful breathing for a little while, the wild mind begins to calm down, and it becomes malleable, supple and flexible. The supple mind can be trained. When it stops resisting and fighting everything, then it learns to accept the limitations imposed on it. Then it's very useful. The monastic life is like being tied to a stake or put in a corral. You can't go around doing as you like. You have to live within limits. But you still have the old habits. And as you look out over the railing of the corral, you think, I want to go over there. Yet you remain inside. You are surrendering and resigning yourself to the limits of the robe and precepts. Once you have stopped resisting, then your mind can start to be trained, to see and know and no longer be a wild creature. 
that just follows its desires. When you're tied down, at first there's a lot of anger and resistance. Just after I was ordained as a Samanera, I remember feeling a lot of resistance, a lot of hatred and anger towards everything and everybody. Some days I just hated everyone. It was resistance to rules, to authority. Resentment at all the limitations. <coughs> Finally the resignation came. I surrendered to the monastic life. Then my practice began to develop properly. So you need to recognize what's going on. The advice is not to try acting like an ideal monk or nun, nor to try to make others believe that you are a meditation master. There's no need for any masquerade. You're not putting on a costume. But you learn to use these robes as they are. Their function is to restrict you. You don't have the freedom that you would have wearing trousers. You can't just leap up into the trees and swing from the branches. You can't race around here. You can't race about here, there and everywhere wearing these clothes. As a monk or nun, you're a marked person. Everybody knows, so you can't get away with anything. You go out on the town thinking, now I'm away from the monastery. Now I can really let my hair down and have a good time. You're still a monk or a nun in the middle of Bangkok. You take your corral with you. Somebody asked me once, do you ever take off your robes and have a holiday? They were surprised to find out that we don't put on a Hawaiian shirt, pop down to the beach. Interesting thought, isn't it? <laughs> put on a Hawaiian shirt and pop down to the beach. Our holiday is in the mind rather than outside. You have to find the real holiday resort within yourself. The common attitude is to kill the kilesas, quote-unquote, kill the defilements. But you see monks who try to kill hatred, and they're still trying, although they've been monks for many years. It's sad to see them still repressing everything. Defilements are not a problem, as long as one does the investigation properly. So let your inclination be towards Nibbāna. Then you have the freedom to bring up the nastiness in yourself, to take a good look. Because once you know what it is, then it diminishes and goes to cessation. Sometimes when we're very angry and hateful, we can bring it up and observe it. We don't have to act it out or try to resist it. If you want to kill me, I'd prefer that you don't, but make it fully conscious so you can see it. I hate Venerable Samedo and I want to kill him. I want to pull him apart, limb from limb. I'm going to poke his eyes out. That's the way to make it fully conscious. You see it as only a condition in your mind and you can let it go. Usually when we feel hate or anger, we get frightened of it. We feel guilty. I hate Venerable Samedo. Or I shouldn't, I shouldn't. Oh, a good bhikkhu should love the teacher, but I hate him. It goes on. And you're never really aware of what's going on. You just vacillate between the emotion of hatred and the guilt around it. So, have the courage to really hate, fully, consciously hate, but listen to it rather than act on it. I remember when I was at Ajahn Chah's monastery, I'd really hate him sometimes. First of all, I got very frightened of that feeling. I felt guilty. And then I decided to really hate. I'd sit there and think of all the hateful things that I could think of about Ajahn Chah. Then I'd listen to that. There was no intention to harm Ajahn Chah. <coughs> I did it to recognize the hatred. But when you really listen to hatred, you see it for what it is. You can stir it up for a while, and then you let it go. But when there's guilt around the hatred, we repress our hatred. Then we're always caught up in feelings of remorse, self-hatred and guilt. Reactions like this contain a lot of conceit, a lot of atta, self. We have the idea that these emotions are my problem, rather than seeing them as conditions. If somebody tells me I'm a no-good so-and-so and they're angry and very aggressive to me, it's natural to feel fear or anger. If they tell me how wonderful I am, it's natural to feel happy. It's nice to hear praise and offensive to hear criticism. Praise, blame, happiness, suffering, success, failure, high status, low status, they're all natural conditions. You might think, I shouldn't be happy when I'm praised, I shouldn't be unhappy when I'm criticized. But this is being very idealistic. Instead, by allowing all the mental attachments to be fully conscious, you get to understand them. If you can endure, you'll observe that their nature is to go away, not to stay, and you become very peaceful. This is the way of catharsis in meditation, in which you relieve the mind from its habitual repressions. 
When you understand hatred, you're not creating more kamma, intentions which will bear fruit. In the training rules, there's no such thing as a mental offense. Hating the teacher is not an offense. It's not a breach of the monastic discipline, as long as you don't threaten or hit me. That point is very important to realize. In Christian teachings, it's wrong to have bad thoughts, so the priests often have tremendous guilt in their minds. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, If you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed adultery. That's a really hard teaching. It makes you feel guilty about lust, but will not solve the problem. Sometimes we do feel lust, let's face it, but there's no need to feel all guilty about it. So there's a clarity in the Buddhist morality that Christian morality doesn't have. A Buddhist monk who thinks the most dreadful thoughts but doesn't act on them has not committed any offense. So we can allow dreadful thoughts to become fully conscious. We're not committing any breach of our training rules. So in that freedom to allow things to be conscious, we let them go, and they go to cessation rather than into the subconscious. Psychologically then, Buddhism works so well because it's not a guilt-ridden Buddhism works so well because it's not a guilt-conditioning religion. Christianity makes you feel guilty about being a person, even about having a body. You're born in sin, born a sinner, and that means you're not a nice person. If you're born a sinner, but you're also a child of God, it becomes very confusing. I was brought up in a devout Christian family, and sometimes I used to feel guilty simply about living. As a teenager, I had strong lustful obsessions, and I felt there was something terribly bad about me. I couldn't help having them, but as much as I tried not to, I seemed to have them anyway. What was I supposed to do? I became very disillusioned about Christianity. It's a bad joke, isn't it? You're a child of God who created you out of love, and then you have these obsessions which you're not supposed to have, and you don't know what to do about them. The more you try to get rid of them, the more obsessed you become. There is this endless cycle of guilt and repression, <coughs> self-hatred. It all comes from this unfortunate and mistaken ideal. How you deal with these things is all up to you. The guidelines are your actions and speech as suggested by the precepts. When lust and anger comes, you can investigate and know it. In Buddhist training, we're not condemning nature, we're understanding it. So simply reflect, I know you, Mara. You don't think, I have to kill the Kilesas and start bashing away. Recognizing that knowing Mara Mara is the force in the mind, in nature, which will never let you rest until you are perfectly free from kilesas. This devil then performs a useful function in testing you out, no matter how successful or virtuous you might be. <clears throat> this... Um the practice he talks about at the beginning, the asuba. Uh, asuba literally means not beautiful. So, suba is the word for, for, for beauty or beautiful, and asuba means not beautiful. So it's so recognizing the, the not beautiful uh, quality in things that uh, habitually attract us. So obviously on an ultimate level, it's neither beautiful nor not beautiful, but it's just you know, a, a hair or a fingernail or a tooth or a pancreas or a, <laughs> or a bone, you know, they're, they're, they're just uh, natural objects. They're just um, parts of, of human, uh, human bodies as objects in the natural world. They're neither beautiful nor not beautiful, but the, um, the reflection on asuba is to counteract the, the habitual sense of, of attraction towards a configuration of, of uh, somebody's body as being uh, uh, attractive or beautiful, or also attachment to our own. You know, the uh, the uh, amount of money spent annually. I haven't uh, I haven't checked the numbers recently, but I remember when I was living in the states, <coughs> coming uh, coming across the figure, it was something like fifty billion dollars was was spent just uh, in um, in the USA annually, fifty billion on weight loss products and plastic surgery. That's a serious economy. <laughs> so that's consuming stuff to make you weigh less. So weight loss products, so things to eat that make you weigh less, and plastic surgery and, and, and those kind of things. So it's like, Kesaloma Nakadanta Tacho, gone berserk. 
Sometimes when you're in town, you sometimes see the, the, them all together. You see the hairdresser and the nail salon and the tanning parlor. Kesaloma Nakadanta Tacho, all side by side. So it, what it's, uh, this kind of practice is doing is learning how to demystify or to, to break through the, ha- the, uh, the habitual perceptions to think, oh, that's attractive and that's, that's beautiful. And to, um, to not be drawn by that automatic and very powerful um, conditioned response. Yeah, and as uh, Ajahn Sameda says over and over again, it's not because of trying to develop a hatred of the body or a fear of sexual desire, but more to, to understand that this is a force in nature. This is how um, this is how we appeared here. You know, all of us got born because of the sexual desire between our parents, and so uh, and grandparents and great grandparents and so on, back to the blue green algae. Well. <laughs> There wasn't a lot of sexual desire back in the sort of monocellular world, but at least a few hundred million years ago, when when gender got uh, got invented, so it's understanding that dynamic in in nature and as our part of our condition as a human being, to uh, to not be uh, not be fooled by that, not be drawn in by that dynamic, and to to understand it. So uh, uh, that's uh, I think is a very helpful way of approaching it or, or using that just just taking that single word not beautiful asuba and uh, and using that to hold up a mirror to the uh, to the habits that we have of being attracted by uh, particular qualities in other people or being very attached to our own <coughs> configurations of uh, you know when our when our uh, fa- uh, our skin starts to wrinkle wrinkle or the hair starts to go gray or drop out or the various everything starts going south <laughs> Or east and west, <laughs> as it tends to do as the years go by, just to 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 recognise. Oh, I was I didn't realise I was attached to having no wrinkles until these started appearing. Or I didn't realise I really cared about my hair, and even though I shave it off all the time until it started, you know, the <laughs> the brow gets uh, further and further back. The um, and then as uh, as he points out, we have these. The sort of idealized image of the of the body, and again, it's not to to create a negativity towards the body, but also um, you know the uh, the ways that we we tend to idealize the body. As he points out, how uh, all those Hopalong Cassidy movies, he never gets off his horse to go take a pee. You know? <laughs> that uh, it's it's very very rare in in, in um, any accounts. He never you know, it, that side of the, the the human life, those ordinary body functions don't get uh, addressed or or, um, or talked about, and um, we just was and the mind says, well, of course that's disgusting. Why would you want to make an issue, make a feature of that, or talk about that? But in a way, it's also saying, well, why is it disgusting? You know, why wouldn't you have pictures of snot on the outside of a box of tissues? That's what it's for, you know. <laughs> And maybe there is a special snot snot variety tissues that are going on sale, but uh, why, why why would you have little sort of flowers and and fluffy clouds on the outside of a tissue box? You know, why not just have a <laughs> yeah you know, a, a dripping nose or a big lump of snot? Saying, well, this is what it's for. You know, here you are. <laughs> These are your tissues. <coughs> so that that um, in a sense demystifying or deglamorizing, and that the word glamour is a it's an interesting when we use it in terms of nowadays of of uh, referring to someone's attractiveness, um, that someone's glamorous. Or, uh, or, or but the the original usage of the word glamour is out of um, Greek mythology, where it would be a spell that was cast on someone, or they would cast on themselves to, to make them appear different from the way they they actually are. So that when, say, for example, when when Odysseus went back to Ithaca. Athene, uh, the goddess Athena, put a glamour on him so that he wouldn't be recognised on his home island, so that uh, he was people would mistake him for somebody else. So a glamour is like a, a false, is a deliberate false appearance. So being glamorous <laughs> is, in a way, say you're 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 effective at putting up a false appearance. So that this is just trying uh, trying to see life without the glamour and to 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 uh, consider things quite. Um, uh, in, in a quite a sort of direct and natural fashion. So, 
and in in this way, you know, you can you can use things like say if you if you're attracted by the surface uh, level of somebody, uh, the 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 uh, external features of the body, you can bring to mind. Say, well, I wonder what I wonder what her pancreas looks like, or you know, <laughs> or the, wonder what the you know the the the, uh, the inside of of his his lungs, you know, uh, how do they appear? Or I wonder what the 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 kind of the neocortex of the brain, and wonder what her brain looks like, or you know, what's the the inside of the the, uh, the bones in in his feet? Wonder what they look like, and think parts of the body that that you would never really think of. I mean, I don't really think about pancreases and brain matter very often, but it's just. But then you can reflect. Well, why should that be more? Why shouldn't the pancreas be as interesting as the skin or the teeth or the eyes? And um, and. You don't have to reflect very deeply before you realize, oh yeah, of course, <laughs> it's just a, another body part. We don't say, wow, look at that pancreas. You know, <laughs> at least, unless you're very strange. And that uh, this this is a way of, uh, say, de, um, de-glamorizing and, and kind of, uh, normalizing our perceptions of others. Also, if you find your, uh, that the mind is very much drawn, up, drawn into sexual desire and, and taken up with that, and one of the things I also like to encourage and have done a lot in the past is uh, to reflect on the animal realm. How, uh, you know, you're a human being, so other human beings are interesting to you. you know, you're not interested in spiders. You know, I don't, I've never met anybody who is sexually attracted by spiders. It just doesn't really happen. Or, you know, a tortoise. Or, you know, or a blackbird. You know, like, <clears throat> and, but, yeah, when you hear the bird song in the morning... I think it's huge. The, the robins and the uh, are, um, I think, are the first ones sort of calling out even before the, the dawn begins. With the, the electric light here gets them going, but they're they're all competing for mates or trying to sort of mark out their territory. And and, uh, and when the springtime comes, it's an incredible racket. You know, there's this amazing noise of the the uh, the dawn chorus, and and they're all singing, you know, "Over here, over here, look at me!" You know, <laughs> come and get it, come and get it, look at me. Yeah. And or back off. This is my territory, and yet uh, yeah, I'm not interested in in robin. You know, there's no sexual desire towards a robin or a blackbird. You know that, but they are um, in the midst of their dynamic. They're very very consciously trying to attract a mate, and and that the the features of of the other gender of their species their species is incredibly powerful in their in their minds, and so they're not interested in in us humans. <laughs> They wouldn't see us humans as being you know, attractive or interesting or appealing in that kind of a way. We don't smell good. We don't look good. We, have, we all you know, haven't got the right feathers. We're all the wrong shape, wrong colors. And so, just to to reflect in that way, just to, to uh, if your if your mind is particularly obsessed with somebody or, or taken up with a particular desire, just to say, well, I see that 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 robin. I'm not interested in that robin, but I'm fascinated by him or by her. Look at that. Why isn't that robin as interesting as this other person? Look at that. If I was a robin, then that would be that would be interesting. There would be all kinds of compelling features there. Uh, but there aren't, because I'm not of that species. Therefore, this feeling that I'm experiencing of sort of pull towards another to certain features is totally conditioned by this human birth, by these perceptions of, of, the, of the cause and effect of, uh, of this life and this attraction towards either either some other individual person or people of the opposite gender or people of the same gender you know obviously wherever the uh, the attraction has its sort of location so it's a i find it, it it's a very um neat and direct way of of say getting a perspective on that and seeing how when you say like, attracted to a tortoise or a spider how many of you thought oh yeah right None of you. I'm sure. I don't, I'm not psychic, but I'm sure nobody thought. Oh yeah, <laughs> never thought about tortoises before. It, it doesn't. The mind doesn't work in that way. But it's, look, why is that so absurd? Why is it so ridiculous? It's just you know, attraction. You know, it's the sense of a dynamic between another being, you know, ourselves, and another being. But it, it it feels totally ridiculous. So it's and also it, it's a way of of. Um, Say, well, I, I come to live in a monastery in order to uh, to liberate the heart. I don't here to come here to find a partner or a mate. I don't I, can't, I don't come here to gratify sexual desire. Um, 
<clears throat> but I, you know, I feel this sense of attraction to this person or that person. Well, that we this helps us to reflect on the absurdity of that. Well, I didn't come here for that. I don't want that. Again, it's still happening. Um, and so that one can consider that in exactly the same way. Well, that should be as absurd as as, as the idea of of attraction to a uh, a bird or to a spider or to, to to a tortoise. Look at that. But it's not absurd. <laughs> because of the conditioning aha so that way of reflection helps us to get more leverage on that kind of dynamic and to to create a bit more space around that so that it's it's less uh, less convincing less compelling less less confusing to us does that make sense so Then he also um, talks about the um, again this. Uh, if your tendency is towards aversion, if you're a, a, what they call a dosa charit type, a, uh, an aversion type, then more a super practice doesn't usually help. It just makes you more negative and aversive and critical. So as he said, if your if your mind is is sort of um, eagerly relishing the dismantling of the body. As he says that um, this is a gleeful indulgence in it, <laughs> then the, the, you uh, you can be um, uh, it can help you just to, to steer away from that and develop more more loving kindness. Um, but then, <clears throat> as Ajahn Chah or once someone said, uh, so you know, Lumpur, is it is it always is is it always good to practice loving kindness? You know, I, I think this is a very important. Uh, focus for for meditation, um, but so is matter always good? And he made that I forget who it was he was speaking to, um, but he made the he kind of looked at them and said, "Too much matter, and you get babies." <laughs> <laughs> so uh, these these things you always have to get to know your own character and to see where um, where your disposition lies, and also to to see what's really working for you. Ajahn Chah used to, uh, for his own practice, what he he, he said how because he had so much uh, uh, lust and sexual desire in his in his nature that at the beginning of every meditation he would visualize sort of taking off his skin, sort of laying it down on the ground, and then dismantling his body and just sort of piling up all the sort of muscles and bones and organs, just sort of having it as a, a heap in front of him. <laughs> it's a sort of standard first ten fifteen minutes of every sitting, isn't it? dismantle the body, have it sitting there just to um, say change his perceptions of his own body and his own sort of attachment to that and his own uh, his own feelings of, of strength or um, or being good looking and he was he was particularly attached to his teeth and in some of his Dhamma talks he, he, he describes how he used to spend ages and ages kind of polishing each of his teeth one by one and and this is nice now they're all gone. <laughs> He had, by the time I knew him, he had false teeth. So, all his all his precious teeth had had uh, long since fallen out. Well, yeah, that might well be so. But uh, Lumpo Chah did talk about his his attachment to his his precious white teeth. That he used to polish them one by one when he was a kid, and then when he was a a, a novice monk and a monk. And then again, uh, Lumpo talks about um, making. Um, Aversion fully, uh, well, making our, our thoughts fully conscious, you know, and to, to bring that up into into the mind, and um, so <coughs> deliberately thinking all the hateful things he could about Ajahn Chah, and to to recognise the, the the hatred, and to be able to to get a perspective on that. And as I was saying the other day, it's 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 quite marvellous how. When you do make those murmurings very conscious that uh, you have off at the edges of your your thoughts, uh, if you make them conscious and state them out loud, like I, I really hate this, or I really want this, or I've got to have such and such, 
oh, then it uh, the the in a way the glamour of it the 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 convincingness of that statement then loses its uh, uh, dissolves it loses its power to to compel us because it, it's it, it only holds up or it only be, remains um, strong or, or uh, effective if it's off at the edges of perception and we don't really see it or, or hear it clearly. So, any questions or reflections? Yes. Well, um, both really, um, both in meditation as an exercise, like I was describing, you know, Ajahn Chah would, as a matter of course, would sort of dismantle his body um, at the beginning of every sitting, just to sort of get a perspective on it. But also um, uh, to have it as an ongoing way of reflecting as you're out and about. Um, yeah, and uh, so if if you see that the mind is particularly taken up with those kind of habits, or is, is always drawn to looking at uh, attractive people, or, or is obsessed with a particular person um, in an unskillful way, then um, you can set the intention. Okay, well, when I see people, when I see, when I see that person, I don't want to see them in that way. So I'll just think about their liver. I'll see if I can <laughs> look beyond the the um the, the surface and the and look uh, and uh, make a point of uh, reflecting on the bones or the liver or the blood or, or whatever and and just having that as a, a an, an intention to have in in mind as you're going about your daily activity and it's, so it's it's uh, a very uh, very useful and powerful way of, of re reconfiguring the your perceptions like and the, sometimes, you know, Lumpur Sameda would say, he would be sitting here in the sala, he'd give a morning reflection every day for about half an hour or so, 40 minutes. And he'd say, well, each one of us is supposed to have 22 feet of intestines. So there's about 50 people in this room. <laughs> so that's about, about a, a, you know, over a, that's a, over a thousand... <laughs> Have a, a thousand feet of intestines in this room. Isn't that an interesting thought? And you can guarantee none of us have thought that. Yeah, right. <laughs> have a you know, three hundred yards of intestine sitting, you know, sitting gathered together, and that uh, that simple way of of um, rejigging your perceptions, and and rather than oh, this is a woman, this is a man, this is an old person, this is a young person, this is an attractive person, this is an unattractive person. Just say, oh, we have, we have, uh, we have sixty-five or sixty-six lungs here, <laughs> or uh, yeah, how many how many fingers do we have in the in the room? And so, just uh, the way of re uh, reconfiguring our perceptions and seeing things in a in a, a fresh light, and often it doesn't take a lot. It's just enough to sort of pop the bubble to, to, to break the glamour like oh yeah look at that I was calling that something that's that's beautiful or attractive or I call that good but isn't it interesting how conditioned that is yes Chinta. a couple of nights ago we were talking about suffering being a mundane truth but not an ultimate truth I got a bit pitched on is anatta is 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 it an ultimate truth, or is it only in relation to things? Um, well, the, he was uh, saying that the four noble truths are noble truths rather than ultimate truths. So that so to say dukkha is an ultimate truth would be to say that you know, you know all of uh, every aspe- every attribute of uh, aspect of reality is painful. Which is not the the, the case. Yeah. Well, anatta, it's it's in in a way it's in relationship to the feeling of self. It's like a counterpoint. Like we're having the discussion. Sister Tisara was asking a question the other day on that. That. So it's a counterpoint to the feeling of I'm here, you're there, and we're all separate people. Or you know, this is 
this is my chair or this is my folder. And so it's a it's a, a counterpoint or a, um, a way of counteracting that that the very conditioned feeling of I-ness and me-ness and minus. But in a way, it's not an ultimate truth, um, in, because it, it's it's it's, uh, it's way it's a way of because um, if you take it as an ultimate truth, then it can come across as the Buddha says that you know there is no self as like a, a sort of metaphorical statement or a metaphysical statement where the 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 reflections on those three characteristics they're they're like a, more like a set of tools to help loosen the attachments that that are there around permanence around identity and ownership and around uh, satisfaction and uh, uh, and it's a, a way of helping us to sort of loosen our grip on those so when we, when they say you know all sabay sankara says sabay dhamma anatta you know all dhammas are not self. Um, <clears throat> in a way, you can say it's true, but also there's there's a passage in the uh, in the Sutta Nipata <coughs> where the the Buddha also says you know the the wise one uh, doesn't see anything as belonging to them, but they don't see they don't see anything as not belonging to them either. So that you know, everything belongs, nothing belongs, and so that um, it, it's a um, uh, it's a simply using the word anatta uh, is a is more of a way of just counteracting that I making and my making <laughs> habit, rather than making a like a, a sort of metaphysical statement. Does that make sense? Well, that, that that so that that passage from the Sutta Nipata, you know, the wise person that does not see anything as belonging to them, yes. but also they don't see anything as not belonging to them either. So, like, it, it's a, in a way, anatta is like letting go of the whole self structure. So, if uh, if you if you if you use the word in in a way in its most um, complete sense. Then uh, it's, it's like saying, yeah, everything is self, or nothing is self. They they basically have the same meaning. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, it's the kind of thing. Is it's <laughs> well, if you think of the the these anicca dukkha anatta, they're more like a set of of tools, like like a like a, a um, set of of spanners and screwdrivers <laughs> to to unpick the 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 constructions that that we make. Because it's the yeah, because it's it's all you know, like in, in Advaita Vedanta, or say that if you if you read the teachings of someone like Sri Ramana Maharshi, then they use a method of of investigating the I am rather than. Yeah, that uh, everything is not self. That they you investigate the I am, and it's sort of, they kind of expand the I am to include everything. So like I am the universe, and so that, and then people would say, oh, that, that sounds like it's the opposite of the Buddha's teaching. But if you investigate it, you realize no, it's actually <laughs> it's, the, it's the same thing. Uh, it it has the same result. Um, if you explore that and, and, and investigate it, but at the surface level, it looks like it's an opposite. It's the opposite teaching, saying, "Yeah, you know, I am. I am the universe, or I, I am everything. Is what I am." <clears throat> uh, but it's again, it's a skillful means of arriving at that same, at the same quality of liberation. I would say, and and so that. Um, you can say well everything you can say everything is self or nothing is self everything belongs or nothing belongs and as often comes up in in Lomposomedo's teachings he would say well same same you know? <laughs> because they're just it's just using language and uh, which is a conditioned thing and concepts as a conditioned thing to open the heart to the unconditioned which is beyond language and beyond concept so any any word any concept can only 
point to a, an ultimate truth, they can't actually embody it. So it's one of the, the, the kind of strokes of genius of the Buddha, realizing you can't really depict or describe the ultimate truth. But you can point to methods whereby it can rea- be realized. So he, he essentially didn't bother trying to, to describe ultimate reality. So when you look at the, the qualities of the Dhamma, Sanditiko, you know, apparent here and now, Akaliko, timeless, Ehipasiko, encouraging investigation, doesn't give you a lot to grab onto. <laughs> there's, not, there's not a lot there to, to get a grip on. And, and so 99% of his attention in his teaching is, is directing us to the method of realization, how we can... Uh, that, that ultimate reality can be realized directly. Um, and so the, a concept like anatta is a concept, it's a, it's a conditioned thing, it's, it's, a, it's a, a word, it's a, a conceptual form that helps the mind to awaken to that which is beyond concept. Well, I haven't uh, uh, used it that much, um, but uh, <clears throat> the um, the way that that I, I reflect on that or or have used it is just to to take a simple phrase like you know, "everything belongs," or um, yeah, <clears throat> "everything everything that 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 I am is Dhamma." Dhamma is everything. Something like that. Just taking a, and that's I use this, this kind of a practice. Just taking a simple phrase or a single word or a few words like that. And then just bringing that up. And then seeing what effect that has in terms of, uh, sort of challenging the areas of attachment. Because uh, with who I am, hmm? the question which is often used. Well, yeah, it's uh, the... You know, you're, you're you're using those kind of statements or questions uh, to break up the the habitual and, and narrow ways of thinking. You know, I am I, I am a monk, or I am a man, or I am a human, and <clears throat> that in the the Vedanta they tend to they sort of, whereas they in the in that form they in a sense they expand the I am to. To encompass everything. In the in the uh, the the, um, the the Buddha's languaging of things, it's uh, letting uh, the habitual and narrow um, ways that the uh, the I feeling is is held. That identification with the body, with the personality, how uh, they. Uh, uh, you're using the investigation of I and, and anatta to to let go of those narrow or shallow um, um, perceptions of self, and so that then, that it, in a way, it has the same effect of expanding the the the, the vision of what's what's real, and uh, the uh, <coughs> it, it equally involves so in the Vedanta letting go of personality, letting go of the. And, and like if you if you read Ramana Maharshi's teachings, is he often um, talks about you know the the delusion of I am the body, <laughs> which is identical to the Sakaya Ditti that you have in in the self self view that is the first of the fetters, you know, the first of the obstacles to enlightenment in the in the Buddhist expression. So they will talk about it, you know, the I am uh, you know I am the body is the is a is Similarly, is an attachment that needs to be let go of and, and pass beyond. So, just taking—I um, mean, it's, it's the kind of thing you can explore you know, and, and experiment with. But that—that that would be the kind of thing 
um, I would that I like to use is taking a simple phrase or a simple word like you know, everything that I am is Dhamma. Dhamma is everything. And then just seeing how that sort of challenges the or or, or how that helps the various layers of, of attachment or or um, limitation fall away and then seeing how that <laughs> the uh, you know, the, the the attachments and identifications crowd in again yeah so then this this uh, exploration of kesalomanakadantatacho you know that the hair of the head hair of the body nails teeth and skin that's and that's right. It is interesting. That's the sort of the first meditation subject you get so as you go forth. Is is a, aimed directly at helping us to break through that self view, sakayaditi, and that that the you know, the the surface level of the body is what we most obviously take to be <coughs> me. <laughs> I am this this person, and the, these characteristics are mine, and that. Um, right there, as you're going forth, it's like, okay, <laughs> this is task number one. <laughs> this is the, the the main the main thing to pay attention to is letting go of that identification with with the body, and that's the most primary form of attachment. It seems like it seems like all social conventions can be understood as kind of rooted in this in this physical form. So, you know, there's the social conventions around being a person and a personality and being able to own things. So there's legal conventions and all of the conventions about beauty or ugliness. And it's like the web of convention, the web of the way that our, our very world is constructed can be viewed as beginning right at the surface of our of our bodies, mm-hmm. and so disenchanted. That's it. Seems like the goal there is to disenchant, to demystify, mm-hmm. to sort of see through all of the conventional layers that imprison us. Um, and the doorway to doing that is to sort of go against convention and say, "I'm simply going to look at a tooth." <laughs> I'm simply yeah. going to look at skin. Mm-hmm. I'm simply going, you know, and try to strip it, strip it of all of the stories, all of the romance, all of the mythology and sort of energy around around um, uh, these just purely kind of material manifestations. Yeah, exactly. And that's why the uh, the second of the fetters is attachment to conventions. That's a sila pataparamasa. So another useful uh, reflection is the uh, the qualities of what's attractive or what's not attractive. Just just looking at at um, pictures of people over the years, like paintings from 100 years ago, 200 years ago, photographs and or different countries, you know, what's what's uh, attractive or you know what what men should look like in one country or what women should look like in one country can be totally different. Uh, from one place to another, and what's considered uh, attractive and beautiful, one place, you know, that one country, you know, you've got to weigh at least twenty stone in order to be attractive. You know, you've got to be like two or three hundred pounds before anyone's going to sort of look, think of you as marriageable. You know, well, he's a nice bloke, but he's way too skinny. He needs another, you know, <laughs> he needs to bulk up, otherwise he's not acceptable as a as a husband. And uh, and yet, and in other places, it has, you know, this. Um, you got to be a you got to be a, a waif, you know, a sort of skin or skin and bone to be to be attractive. And how things change through the through the ages is extraordinary. Um, what's considered a, uh, a you know the range of stuff that's considered attractive or beautiful from from one century to another to another to another. It's a, it's a extraordinary uh, how fickle our perceptions are. And, but still, in every age, people spend a fortune <laughs> sustaining those the, those images. So just to be able to reflect on, on that and to see, oh look, that's this is the pull of of the um, the conditioning, and to be able to recognize, oh, it's, that's just this is just the the strength of conditioning, and it doesn't have to be believed in. And uh, 
how our favoured there's like our favoured self view. We we like how we like to see ourselves or how we like to be seen, and just seeing how totally conditioned that is. Yeah, Chinta again. Well, that, yeah, conventions is a is a more broad way of describing it. So <coughs> it's sila pata paramasa literally means um, cuddling um, virtue. Paramasa is to kind of sort of knead or cuddle or kind of to fondle. So it's like taking hold of conventions and forms and rituals and and in a in a sort of fussy and attached and and. Uh, uh, kind of over over involved way. So Ajahn Chah would use he would he would use he would broaden it. To, he said it's not just about you know, the words that you chant or some kind of magical ritual that you know, like bathing in the river Ganges or or um, bowing in a certain way or chanting in a certain way. It's 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 uh, much broader. So he would he would point to it how it it's the conventions of which side of the road you drive on. Or what you use as money, or um, when he came to the West, you know, he talked about it a lot because the conventions here were so different from Thailand. That uh, what was totally acceptable and, and considered beautiful over there, people didn't even notice here. And what was uh, what people ha- was important for people here was was uh, totally strange to for Thailand. And he was fascinated by that. He thought this is very intriguing how. Um, what would be extremely upsetting to a Thai person, a Brit didn't even notice. He was very impressed by the way that the English queue, queuing, was fascinating to him. He couldn't he couldn't believe that people would actually stand in a line at a bus stop, and that when the when the they had to explain to him that when the bus stopped, then there was places for six people on the bus, and six people would get on. and He said, "And the number seven will just stand there." He said, "Yes." But what if they want to get on? They're in a hurry. Well, they have to stand there. They can't get on. So never happened in Thailand. <laughs> but he was very impressed by it. That that shows a lot of discipline. And that uh, and the, and the people said, you know, and if you jump the queue in this country, that's like completely unacceptable. And maybe it's changed a bit nowadays, but queue jumping is almost like on a par with murder, or you know. <laughs> arson or something it's like to to jump the queue is socially totally unacceptable and he thought really <coughs> oh yes if if somebody jumps the queue and it pushes in front that's for the english people that's extremely you know unforgivably rude and he, oh. <laughs> he, he never thought of such a thing but he, oh that's interesting so that yeah go ahead yeah. Uh, I would like to ask you uh, about the teachings or about when we speak about the Dharma. I think uh, the Dharma is very simple, the teachings in uh, the Buddha, he made very clear and very simple. But uh, we use a lot of rhetorics, tautology, and recurrence when we speak about the Dharma. We make a lot of complications about the, the when we speak or we, we when get teachings about that, that what do you think is we, we complicate so much because uh, I, 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 if it's true uh, um, the uh, it's probably because our our habits of thinking are over complicated you know, Ajahn Sumedho tries to, to phrase things in a very uncomplicated way very simple so I but the, the usually in the master they, they usually use like lot of rhetoric and tautology. When I, I I start to listen, no, they always say this is everything and it's nothing in the same time. But this is just something that is not. Which teaching are you talking about? Which teaching are you talking about? No, all the teachings, all the teachings in general. All is all is they use. Rhetoric, 
very, very nice. It's a beauty thing to say, mm -hmm. but in self, no. So you, are you, you're no. talking about the English word rhetoric? Is that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> rhetoric. No. The art, the art of the speaking. Yeah, the art, yeah. 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 So this is, you know, he said, I mean, when the, the Buddha, I think he wants to make more simple, no? The things to understand. Yeah, he was. A, a lot of masters made a lot of the round or the circle, you know? Mm -hmm. they, they use the language very certified, mm -hmm. certified a language for speaking something, speaking about something very simple. Yes, well, the, uh, the, the main point is to, for, for the teaching to be understood. Mm -hmm. So whatever is the best way of helping the, the teaching to be understood, mm -hmm. then that's, that's the way to use. So Ajahn Chah was uh, particularly well known for being able to express himself in a very simple and direct way and using very helpful similes. So some of us are not quite as uncomplicated. <laughs> so, but uh, it's... It's very confusing. It can be, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay. So Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.